the series so far. So, um, men and women in Christ, um, a divine harmony. We're exploring as a church God's design for men and women to bring their gifts together to bless one another, the church, and the world. What does the Bible show us by direct teaching or example about how men and women are meant to work together? What's what's the vision here? Not just husbands and wives, but men and women. And we are examining this both by looking at examples in scripture like Adam and Eve, Deborah and Barak, Esther and Mordecai and others, but also by looking at some of the trickier passages, which we're going to start looking at tonight. And we are doing this not because we want to come to a particular conclusion. Uh, we've initiated this not because we're saying we're doing something wrong as a church, we should do something different, but because we've never examined this really as a church. And it seems like the right time to do it with the hope that as we do this, we will learn better how to be men and women in Christ, and we will keep our minds and hearts open to God showing us something new through his amazing word uh, that will then help us to reflect his glory better in this world. And that might mean that we make some changes in what we do as a church, or it might not. We're going to keep an open mind, certainly at least until we finish this whole series, which will take us at least another two or three months, I think, till we get there. So that's where we are. So tonight we're looking at uh, chapters 11 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, and I have to say, as you may know in these passages, that some parts are quite hard to understand what Paul is getting at. Part of that is to do with culture and 2,000 years of separation between our times and the times of uh, when Paul's writing, and part of it might also be what Peter writes here in chapter 3 of 2 Peter verse 15 and 16, uh, our dear brother Paul wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter, uh, he was not being negative here about Paul. He's just saying there are some things that are hard. And we've got to be careful not to be ignorant or unstable in the way that we then interpret what Paul is teaching us. So hopefully tonight we will be stable and, um, and knowledgeable rather than ignorant and unstable and figure out at least what we need to understand. We may not understand everything, but what do we need to understand of what Paul is saying that will help us? I also want to say that some of this material, when we start talking about men and women, we start talking about headship and leadership and authority and submission these are words that are many of those are in these passages these can be triggering for some of us and i want to acknowledge that it can be hard um, because of what's happened to us in the past whether it's uh, for men or women men uh, have had tough situations with women in their lives that have made it hard for them to handle uh, this kind of discussion and it's the same thing for many women who've had difficult times with uh, a man in their life or men in their life that can make this a bit of a triggering thing. So I want to acknowledge that. And if any of us are feeling that, then uh, it, it, that's understandable. And uh, let's pray for each other that we can be strong enough to continue to learn what we're looking at here. The Roman Empire, there was a thing called the New Roman Woman around this time, which was a sort of Roman Empire feminist movement, uh, generally frowned upon uh, in society. The idea of a middle to upper class, usually upper class Roman woman who would um, go out and about in ways that would have been thought shameful um, around that time. Uh, in Corinth, it was very entrepreneurial, very progressive. The cult of Aphrodite was a big deal here. That's the goddess of war and fertility. It was a port city, as you said, Stefan. 
meaning it brought uh, meaning it had a lot of vice and visitors. There was an honor shame culture, um, very diverse. Uh, the patron client system was strong in Corinth. It wasn't exclusive to Corinth, but Corinth, amongst the cities in uh, Roman cities, maybe had more of that, where you had a like a patron who would take care of looking after a particular area, like a, a sector of a city, and uh, they would. Uh, provide a lot of employment for the other people around. Um, some people liken it to a cross between Las Vegas and New York. New York, the sort of business side of it, and Las Vegas, the, um, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of idea. Very, very crazy place. Uh, Aristophanes coined the term Corinthiazestai, meaning to act like a Corinthian. In other words, instead of saying somebody was sexually promiscuous, you'd say, well, they're a Corinthian, you know, that kind of label. Um, Plato used the term Corinthian girl as a euphemism for a prostitute. So rather than say that person's a prostitute, you might say, well, that's a Corinthian girl. So it's known for that across the whole Roman Empire. What was the church like? You may well know the church was very divided at the beginning of Corinthians. Paul uh, basically rebukes them for the fact that they have these divided ideas about who they follow, Apollos or Paul or Christ, uh, Cephas, chapter 1, verse 12. They're divided in their loyalties and their um, uh, who they follow, uh, and they're disorderly in their worship. Those are probably the two main things. There are a few other issues, and this disorderliness of their worship will come to because it's very relevant to chapters eleven and fourteen. They had, as I said earlier, this patron-client system in the city, and they would have pa patron house churches. So what that would mean is, you know, we have our idea of what church might have been like in the first century. And we know that since there were no purpose-built church buildings, church took place in homes, sometimes outdoors, but primarily in homes. And those patron house churches in Corinth were probably larger than most other places where Christians had house churches. In a place like Philippi, Lydia appears to have been quite wealthy. Her house was probably quite large, and they probably had church there. Um, this is a photograph of um, a Roman villa in the era of uh, Paul in Malta. This is Malta, in fact. And so the idea is you'd have had church in, um, in, a, in a sizable area in someone's home, a patron's home, and around the outside of that square area, you would have tables with food on, uh, the men, the women, the children would all be there. They estimate that the average size of a patron house church in Corinth was probably 50 or 60 people. So it's not like a house church like, well, especially in the UK, most of us can't fit more than a dozen or more or so people in our homes, maybe a few more, but we can't imagine having 50 or 60 people for a worship service. Uh, it's a bit like what we do at Watford in the building we use. Maybe that kind of number would have been a house church, but it would have been in someone's home and it would have been in a less, much less formal setting than we have our congregational services and uh, we tend to think of. So that's the kind of setup. A lot of interaction, a lot of movement, a lot of noise, actually, in those services on some on some level. Now, also, I should point out that chapters 11 and 14 have two other chapters in between, right? They have 12 and 13, and they're very relevant to what's going on in the church and to those two chapters, 11 and 14. Chapter 12 is focused on the idea that the church is meant to be a united body. Uh, the foot cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And we won't look at those passages now because they're pretty well known, but also you can go back and have a look. But the emphasis in these chapters is that everyone uh, needs one another. We can't be separate doing our own thing. We need each other. The church, 
needs all the gifts we have as bring them all and use them for the, the benefit of the church. It's important that we honor the weaker and the suffering parts of the church in chapter 12, one of my favorite little sections of it in uh, verse 25, there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for one another. We've got situations where the rich and the poor are not showing equal concern for one another. And perhaps we have situations where the men and women in the church are not showing equal concern for one another. Something like that is going on. So um, he's also calling on them to uh, get their priorities straight. And uh, some gifts are more important than others. Uh, he talks about that towards the end of chapter 12. Uh, do are all prophets are all teachers do all work miracles do all have the gifts of healing do all speaking tongues eagerly desire the greater gifts so he's asking them to get focused on the right on the right things um and chapter 13 is very much about love one another the famous chapter on love if i speak in the tongues of men and angels do not have love i'm a resounding gong or a clanging symbol so love is more important than the gifts and the way we use our gifts he's saying is more important than the gifts themselves the gifts are temporary love is permanent you could say eternal you could say that gifts are things from god distributed to his church for its benefit but love isn't a thing love is god's character which is why that matters more than anything else and one of the things that paul is trying to do for the church in corinth is help them to use these wonderful gifts but to use them in unity use them to benefit one another and use them in a loving way so that having been said, let's dig in to chapter 11 and then a little bit into chapter 14. And then let's see what kind of questions we have or comments after that. So let me bring up chapter 11, verses 1 to 16 on the screen here. And let's just uh, read it. I praise you, Paul says, for remembering me and everything, holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. By the way, tradition there is a technical term. It doesn't mean tradition like the kind of traditions that Jesus was very uh um critical of with the pharisees is not that kind of tradition here tradition is a technical term meaning the tradition of the gospel the teachings of the gospel i pass these on to you i want you to realize that the head of every man is christ the head of every woman is man and the head of christ is god every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Then, if it is rather, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. 
let me make a few comments on this passage, trying to explain some things and letting you know, quite frankly, there are several things in this passage that I'm unsure about. I have ideas, but I'm not sure. Firstly, the word head. The word head is that Greek word you can see on the screen there, kafale, meaning can mean source or leader or authority. Let me give you a better definition is the Greek word. It can mean the head, the top, the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. It can mean metaphorically the head, superior, chief, principal, one to whom others are subordinate. There are a range of meanings here for the word translated head. That should give us a little bit of pause before we're too sure about what it means, because it can mean more than one thing. And what it means is something for us to think about, pray about, and I'll be interested in your thoughts. What we notice in this passage is that Paul does not criticize women for praying and prophesying in a church service. On the contrary, he lays down the way the women should be dressed when engaging in it, and therefore that shows us that he accepts women praying and prophesying in a mixed assembly. He's talking here about a church service, about the gathering. Uh, one of the things you may want to bear in mind is that in this culture, wealthy women tended to be less strict about head coverings, which actually were veils, more likely. And if they were in their home, so you've got these patron women who are wealthy, middle to upper class, they're in their own home. They themselves are not that bothered about the head covering. It's not such a big deal to them in their culture. And they may not wear it. And they're in church and they are praying or they're prophesying. And then poorer Christian women come in, and in the poorer classes, the lower classes, they tended to be more conservative about wearing a veil. So they're there wearing their veil. They've got these wealthy patron women not wearing theirs. Tension arises, another area of division and discord in the church. So tension between the rich and the poor is seen in a lot of areas in Corinth and especially around the Lord's Supper, which if you've got time later, have a look at the second part of chapter 11 for some more information on that. What we can say from this passage is that everyone who prays and prophesies needs some kind of sign of authority over their head, both true for men and women. For women, that sign is a covered head, which probably means hair tied up, not let down. Why? Because letting down the hair was something you only did in front of your husband. If a woman went out in public with her hair let down, it was seen as a sign of promiscuity. They were sexually available, possibly even a prostitute, although a prostitute is more likely to have had her head shaved or very short to signify she was available as a, a prostitute. And so with the women, if they have long hair, which they would have, they would have it tied up and a veil um, uh, 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 attached so that it would indicate that they are not available. Um, they are spoken for. That's the idea. Um, for men, the way that they say, sh show that there is an authority over their head is that they have short hair, not long. Paul's main point is that in worship, men should follow the dress codes, including hairstyles, which proclaim them to be male, and women the codes which proclaim them to be female. In that culture, that's what that looked like. For us and other cultures, it would look a little differently. Now, what about this um, troublesome, difficult headship and glory issue? Again, I'm not trying to explain everything tonight. We'll be here, we'll be here all night, and I have, I have probably a dozen or 20 books and countless articles on just on these passages. So uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's really figured it out, but we can say this. The point he's making about the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Maybe he's saying this, that married women are exclusively dedicated to their husbands and a veil or head covering communicates this. Thus they enable men's glory to become visible. They're saying, look, I am a married woman and uh, there is my man in a sense. Uh, and certainly, at least, they don't obscure that glory. Men are exclusively dedicated to Christ, 
Their short hair, or lack of a covering, communicates this. Thus, they enable God's glory to become, in some senses, visible, or at least they don't obscure it, because God's glory is significant in this passage. The, the phrase about the angels, which is difficult to translate, and if you read more than one translation and look at your footnotes, you will see there's a number of different ways to order the words here into the different sentences. So we've got to be at least, again, a little careful about being definitive about what is meant here, about um, having the authority over her head because of the angels. But maybe it's that the angels are in attendance at times of collective worship, perhaps a little bit like when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I am there with you. In a sense, maybe the heavenlies are with us in our times of collective worship. He met references the angels. Maybe it's not only the angels, but he mentions that to help them understand, you know, the way you worship really matters because you're worshiping together with those in the heavenlies. So you're having the right kind of behavior decorum is important to show that you respect that, the presence of the angels, the presence of the heavenlies. So by a decorum appropriate to their culture, which is a veil for women or short hair for men, men and women show respect for the presence of beings inhabiting the heavenlies. That may be something of what's going on regarding the presence of the, the angels here. And maybe Paul is saying something like this. This is my best attempt to summarize this, this paragraph here. Maybe Paul's saying this. You Corinthian Christians are having a hard time understanding the significance of following social etiquette while praying and prophesying. You think your freedom in Christ allows you to disregard cultural customs. The trouble with that is that it is dividing you and bringing the gospel into disrepute. You are right that wearing a veil or not, and the length of your hair is not something significant to God, but you're wrong if you think it is immaterial to healthy worship and revealing God's glory to people. In your culture, he's saying, maybe, women are subordinate to men. That's the reality of where you are. And you just, you're just going to have to accept that. Men are subordinate to Christ in any case, and Christ is subordinate to God as Father. And that seems to work well. And so can you, your, the women's subordination to men. In this context, it can work. It might not be God's ideal. And I think that's something that's, to me, implied here. Back in chapter 7, he says something like that about slavery. He's saying, slaves, if you can get your freedom, get it. But don't make that the main thing. The main thing is to, is to behave in the right way as a, as a Christ follower, as a slave. It's not is acknowledging that it's not God's ideal for, for these slaves to be slaves, but he's saying the more important thing is that you are Christ-like in your situation. And maybe he's saying that in this passage here. It's more important that you are Christ-like in your culture than uh, whether you exercise all of the freedoms you could, in a sense, um, enjoy. So it might not be God's ideal, but it's no barrier to harmonious and meaningful worship to fit in with the cultural ways in which your culture uh, show that you are honoring God and uh, and one another. So I think that's some of what is and I think might be going on in chapter 14 and uh, chapter 11. Let's now go over to chapter 14 and let me put that on screen for us. Only this section, we could read the whole chapter, we don't have time, but uh, this section of chapter 14, let me have a go at uh, at that. What should we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, 
two or at the most three should speak one at a time. Someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, in other words, these prophets must be standing up at this point, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Okay, some thoughts on this part of chapter 14. We're not talking about the nature of tongues here, uh, but they certainly need interpretation. In other words, they're not in a language that the locals understood in the church service. Whether we're talking there about angelic languages, as some people think, or human foreign languages, either way, interpretation was needed. But that's tongues. We're thinking more here about prophecy. What needs to be done with the prophecy, it needs to be weighed, as it says there, weigh the, prophet, uh, the prophecies and uh, weigh carefully what is said, it says there. Why was prophecy necessary? Actually, let's give a brief definition of prophecy here. So this is the word for prophecy in the Greek. It means to exercise the function of a prophet, to prophesy, to foretell the future, to divine, to set forth matter of divine teaching by special faculty. In other words, by the fact that God has inspired it. To, and I think that phrase is very important there, to set forth matter of divine teaching. So a prophet, you could argue, some would argue, a prophet is somebody who is directly speaking from God in a teaching capacity for the church. Why did that kind of prophecy matter in those days? It mattered because uh, they had no, no New Testament. They didn't have a written record of all the teachings and the example of Jesus. They didn't have, of course, all the letters at this point. And no apostle, there wasn't like one apostle appointed per church. There weren't enough of them for, start, for starters, but also they moved around. So if you had no apostle to tell you, oh, you're asking about that. Well, Jesus said this. I heard him teach that. You're asking about taxes? Ah, Jesus said that. You're asking about the authorities? Ah, Jesus said that. You're asking about the kingdom? Yes, Jesus said that. They didn't have that, of course, in the early church, either written or uh, someone in the flesh. I mean, obviously, the apostles did go around, but they weren't there all the time, and questions came up from time to time. And so it left those early churches with, to some degree, a vacuum of instruction that was filled. It was filled, and it was filled by the Spirit working through prophets. However, there's a wrinkle in that which is that false prophets existed, didn't they? They prophesied in Matthew chapter 7 by Jesus. They're mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 John 4. Let me give you uh, the Revelation passage uh, as an example uh, written to the church there in Revelation 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. False apostles, false prophets, they existed. And how was, was the church to know whether they were false or not? If they're talking about Jesus, well, it, it had to be weighed. There was something going on there that we haven't got the detail of. They were weighing up what was said. Now, according 
to chapter 11, women prophesy just like men. And so some of these prophets in chapter 14 are women. Some of that is going on. Why do we have the instruction about women remaining silent? Again, much ink has been spilled on this question, but let me give you a couple of thoughts. Firstly, it is likely that the women in the church were less educated than the men. Maybe that's a sad thing, and we wish it wasn't that way, but in that culture at that time, and for actually a large part of human history, that has been the situation. They were less educated than the men, almost certainly, and bear in mind that most of these people were pagan, they didn't have a Jewish background, so their knowledge of scripture was limited. Maybe the men picked up more scripture and understanding than the women, not because they're more intelligent, but simply because they had more education. Perhaps they could read things people had been had been writing. Maybe Paul left some writings behind when he uh, left Corinth. Maybe Timothy uh, did, maybe Titus, maybe they got some letters. The men ended up, I think, explaining that more than the women would. And therefore, the women would have more questions than the men. If someone is teaching something and it's not understood, it's more likely that the women didn't understand it than the men didn't understand it. Uh, simply because of education and therefore the women would have more questions and therefore they'd be more likely to ask more questions and they might not ask the questions in the right way or at the right time. Uh, in a packed room in 50 or 60 people in someone's house um, and they're asking questions perhaps a lot of them are asking questions then it might prevent the prophets in this passage for example from communicating the message they get in the way of the message or they speak before that person has finished the prophecy the message they're bringing and, um, and maybe it prevented also the people that were weighing the message. Someone preaches something or brings a prophecy, and then you've got this other person, perhaps a, a group, who were good at weighing a prophecy. They're trying to weigh the prophecy. What do you think he meant by that? Was that right? Does that sound like it's from the Spirit? Does that sit fit with the other things we know about Jesus? Perhaps if you've got women, many of them perhaps, asking a lot of questions, they're, they're not able to focus and concentrate and bring the fruit of their weighing of the prophecy to the whole group. So it's, it's about something going on that's disruptive in this context. The word silent does mean silent, but it can also mean something like, wait your turn, pause, be quiet for the moment. And so maybe what Paul is saying there is, if you don't, if you have lots of questions, just hold your horses and be quiet in the church assembly so that everybody can learn together and you can get your questions answered when you get home because otherwise it would be too uh, disruptive. So maybe that's what's going on. Um, to speak up in a way that causes disorder, which is presumably what is happening, is disgraceful uh, because it stops people from learning. Uh, but it cannot be disgraceful for women to speak as such because how else will they prophesy as we've seen in chapter 11? And bear in mind that in Acts chapter two, it says that your young men and women will prophesy. And Acts 21 verse nine, Philip's daughters prophesied and so we do have women speaking in church. So I think the question is more what kind of speaking is Paul talking about? My guess would be that it's about questioning in a way that is disruptive. That'd be my guess. It says the Corinthian women must be in submission. He says that. But what kind of submission is it and what kind of context? Maybe it's in the context of not being well educated and having lots of questions. So let me draw a few conclusions and then let's have some questions and discussion. My, I think, fairly solid conclusions, but limited conclusions are these. Decorum in worship is important because we want God to shine. We want his glory to be revealed, as it talks about in chapter 11. His glory is very important. And we want visitors to see his glory. In chapter 14, it talks about visitors coming in, falling down convicted by what they hear and see, rather than being confused, like, what on earth are you lot all about? 
that that's not helpful for them to see God's glory. Decorum, having decorum, fitting in with the decorum of the culture, is not the same as controlled. Worship is not meant to be controlled. Early Christian worship had spontaneity built into it, as we've we talked about this in a lesson I did um, last year, I think, in uh, chapter fourteen. Uh, each of you has. Uh, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. People are bringing things to church to talk about, to sing. They're making up songs. They're, they've got, uh, heard something from God during the week they want to share with everybody. It's, it's quite spontaneous on one level. So spontaneity isn't the same as disorder and chaos. And, and, being, and having decorum in worship is not the same as controlling everything. Decorum is culturally conditioned. What is uh, decorous in one culture is not in another. That's still true today as it was then. Uh, decorum looks different for men and women culturally it's to do with hair and veils in uh, Corinth but it would be something else in other cultures and there is something significant about the differences between men and women that connect to headship and authority uh, but this headship and authority does not compromise the interdependence of men and women Paul is at pains to point that out woman is not independent of man man is nor is man independent of woman both need each other there's an equality thing going on there so i'm going to stop there and leave you with uh, well, at the moment with those thoughts <laughs>